Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together to see how we could be better equipped to be used by you to share our faith with other people. Bless us as we study together, as we interact. Above all, we pray for the presence of your spirit and angels. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this afternoon with a quote by a young man that, um, when I read his quote, it really struck me the importance of knowing what it is we believe and how to share what we believe. Listen to this quote. He says, I was raised in the church. I went three times a week to church, went to private Christian schools, was active in youth ministry, went to Bible conferences, kind of like S-E-Y-C, he doesn't say that, but, and took many Bible courses, read my Bible, and attended Bible study regularly for many years. And yet, the new atheism sucked me in. What's the new atheism? That's the, there's four gentlemen, uh, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, who promote an atheistic concept. And he says that this sucked him in. As sad as it is, he continues to write, I think that the new atheists say a lot more about the state of the church than they do about themselves. As crazy as it may sound, the evidence they put forward was intellectually much stronger than anything I encountered in the Christian church. And that's a danger. If we meet things outside of our Christian circles that are, um, have arguments that you and I don't know how to handle that seem to overwhelm us, have the tendency to derail our faith. So our purpose together is to give you some tools to help you defend your faith. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, we all know that ambassadors need to be prepared. If you were just to take you know, the U.S. ambassador for China and just throw him in there, he needn't even know that they spoke another language other than English. You know, he wouldn't be a very effective ambassador. So in the same way, ambassadors, we are ambassadors uh, for Christ in this world, and we have to have knowledge, we have to have wisdom, so that when we come in contact with, you know, the adversary or that new area, we will have, you know, we'll be wise and we won't be shut down. Now, I just want to put all of you at ease this afternoon. Not all of us are a Mark Finley. It's not that every time you get on a plane, you're going to go into the back and baptize them with, you know, the airplane water. Not everybody is a closer like that. But the model that we're going to be teaching you today is called putting a stone in someone's shoe. And that's just to get people to think in the right direction. And so it's a very modest goal. It's not, you know, a big thing that we have to reach. It's not that 2,000 people need to be baptized as soon as you get started. But it's just to get people to be thinking in the right way, to challenge their worldview. I'd like to share a quote with you from the book of Evangelism page 339. It says that God works through the calm, regular operation of his appointed laws. Satan is constantly seeking to produce effects by rude and violent thrusts. But Jesus found access to minds by the pathways of their most familiar associations. I think there's a really important lesson there. Too often um, when we encounter people, please come on right in, 
we encounter individuals. Sometimes we'll meet somebody, they'll question our faith or they'll present a different viewpoint and, and our encounters get a bit uh, aggressive. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, some of you are really hesitant to share, so maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But I was on an airplane the other day, going to New York City, sat next to a guy, and he was talking about how his church does outreach. And one of his partners in outreach loves to argue with the people he meets at their doors. Not a very winsome way to, to engage people. But notice, who is it that's trying to produce effects by violent and rude thrusts? It's Satan. But Jesus tries to meet people and disturb as little as possible their accustomed train of thoughts by abrupt actions or prescribed rules. It goes on to say <clears throat> that he honored man with his confidence and placed him on his honor. He introduced old truths in a new and precious light. Thus, when only 12 years old, he astonished the doctors of the law by his questions in the temple. So Jesus very subtly, carefully, with a game plan, was able to turn people's thoughts, as Jeremy said, to put a stone in someone's shoe. And that's our, our goal today, is to help you to make a difference in somebody's life, to give you some tools that can help you be an effective ambassador, not necessarily an evangelist. Now, in Colossians 4, it tells us that our language should be gracious, and we should, it should be seasoned with salt. And as Christians, when we come in contact with people, we should be very gracious in our manner. We should not be you know, aggressive and super argative like the person, because we're trying to win people to Christ, and Christ is not a very aggressive person. He's a very gracious person. And so the game plan that we have today is to you know, make it so that whenever you're talking to someone, even if they're more knowledgeable than you, that you can stay in control of that conversation. You can be... Uh, comfortable in the conversation, and everybody wants to be able to do that. And now, before we get into the details, I just want to give a little bit of background. You know, by definition, apologists defend the faith. They destroy fal false ideas. Uh, they destroy speculations raised up against the church. Too often we think of apologetics in a aggressive manner. You know, it sounds like fighting words. We're going to, apolog we're going to be apologetic. We're going to defend the faith, faith circle the wagons, uh, hoist the drawbridge, draw fix the bayonets. But we don't have to be like that in our apologetic approach. Now, Jeremy mentioned earlier that we should be ambassadors. He read that text from 2 Corinthians 5. And ambassadors need three things. Knowledge, wisdom, and character. These are three essential attributes for ambassadors. Knowledge, wisdom, and character. Knowledge is an informed mind. We need to understand certain things. Wisdom is the right method, and character is our attractive manner. So we're going to be, hi, we're going to be uh, focusing on the middle of the three this afternoon, and that is wisdom. In particular, we're going to give you a game plan that can help you in the most trying encounter. So let's start something here. And if you wouldn't mind, um, I'd like you to turn to your neighbor. I've got uh, some questions here. Pair up with somebody and just answer this question among yourselves. When you think about discussing Christianity with nonbelievers or discussing Adventist perspectives with other Christians, I what? 
relish the encounter, are willing but nervous, scared but trying, and avoid it at all costs. Now we're a small group here. Maybe instead of breaking you up for this point, how would you respond to that? How many of you are like relishing the encounter? You're excited but nervous as well. So the second one there, willing but nervous. What about the rest of you? Scared but trying. Scared but trying. Let's see. Should I guess what your response would be? <laughs> Avoid at all costs. Would that be correct? Uh, did I know that? Okay. Um, we all are on different levels. Some people are just like, hey, I can't wait to meet somebody that disagrees with me. Others like, okay, I know I should do this, but I'm a bit nervous about it. Others are uh, scared. Hey, how are you doing? Come on in. Um, others just, hey, I'm going to run the opposite direction. Well, our desire today is to help you move from avoiding at all costs, at least up one notch, you know, to scared but trying, uh, maybe willing but nervous, maybe relishing the encounter. And you're going to see that our main thought here is to use questions. And this was really Jesus' method. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark. I have lots of references for this. I'm just going to give you two here. Mark chapter 10. Now, using questions, uh, some of you know that uh, I'm, we, Jeremy and I, are both from a Jewish background, and asking questions is part of culture. So, you know, you could ask your relatives, how's the weather? And they could say something like, how could the weather be in December? Or, how are you feeling? Compared to who? You know, it's really hard to get kind of a direct answer and that's, that's very much part of the culture. But you could see it in the experience of Jesus as well. Mark chapter 10. Um, oh, the story starting in verse 2. There's the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him a question about whether a man should divorce his wife or not. Verse 3, Jesus answered them and answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? How did he answer? With a question. And then just jump down to verse 17. This is a really interesting one. There's lots of little pictures like this. As you're reading through the Gospels, it would be really helpful to notice how Jesus interacts with people. Verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, could you imagine you're sitting on the airplane, you're in school, someone comes up to you and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, that's the opportunity to what? Pull out steps to Christ, give it to them, sign them up for a Bible study. What does Jesus do? What does he do? Verse 18. He asks a question. Why do you call me good? And I can just imagine, you know, the disciples standing around saying, you missed it. You know, you missed the opportunity. Why, you know, give him the book. But... Jesus had another point in mind. Now, it's important to realize there's many books that defend Christianity. Um, they defend, they prove the resurrection from the dead, they prove the validity of the Bible. 
and all these things. And you can have all this knowledge, but just having knowledge is not enough. Because if you use this game plan in the wrong spirit, then it won't be beneficial at all. The game plan is not meant to embarrass people or to force them into your own view. It's not meant to belittle them or make them be embarrassed about how stupid they looked with their opinion. But it's meant to come across in a you know, Christ-like way and lead them to Christ. That's the ultimate goal, is leading them to Christ. So in Desire of Ages, on page 353, um, Jesus says... Ellen White there quotes Luke 10, verse 3, where Jesus said, I send you forth as lambs among the wolves. And she talks about how we should interact with people. So, you know, I had this up here. What is it like for you when you meet somebody? Well, what is it like for you, not when you meet somebody friendly, but when you meet somebody that's aggressive? Where's your stress level go in this? Up, down? Sideways, remain the same. Goes up, doesn't it? Notice what she says. Talking about that situation, Ellen White writes, Desire of Ages 353, let them rest in the love of God and the spirit will keep them calm even under personal abuse. Would you like to know how to stay calm in a conversation even when somebody is attacking you? We're going to get to that as we go through the seminar. The Lord will clothe them with the divine panoply. His Holy Spirit will influence the mind and heart so that their voices will not catch the notes of the baying of the wolves. Sorry, of Ages 353. Now, what does that mean? What I mean is that when you get angry with someone, you can just tell on their face. Or if, if you get angry, people can tell on your face that you're angry. If you see somebody else angry, you know, my father has a very expressive face. You just know, you just know that you didn't do something right when you see those eyes. And so when you get angry with someone in a conversation, you tend to, you know, interrupt them. You don't let them finish. And it starts to look like you don't even think that your points are valid. And you start to resort to intimidation instead of persuasion. You're trying to, you know, be forceful and submit them to your view. And it's never really convincing uh, or successful at all when you just come across as you know, an aggressive person. Now, the opposite is true as well. If you remain calm and the other person is just really angry and lost their temper, then it's a loss for both of you because they're not going to be listening or, or doing anything like that. And someone who's angry and defensive is not going to listen to you. Now, in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24-25, it tells us that you know, Christians should not be quarrelsome. So on one hand, arguing can be you know, a very destructive thing, but on the other hand, arguing can also be a very good thing. Jesus tells us to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength. And that's in Mark 12, 30. Uh, we should not just have a sentimental faith, but one that is grounded in truth. So can you argue someone into the kingdom? Well, that depends on the argument. Uh, in Acts 17, 2 to 4, Paul reasoned and he used defense. And some people say that you can only love people into the kingdom. But loving is unquestionably important. We should all have love. But love doesn't guarantee anybody to come into the kingdom. How many can you think of anybody who know that has experienced love from a Christian but still doesn't believe uh, in God? Can I see any hands? So a couple of you, you know people that you know they've experienced love but they still don't believe. 
So love is an important thing, but it doesn't not guarantee. So it sounds like loving and reasoning need to be combined with God's spirit. And when we think of apologetics, it's important to put that together. Arguments by themselves aren't going to convince, but they're important. Acts of love in and of itself, without the work of the Holy Spirit, won't convince us either. Um, it's God's spirit that needs to work on the heart, which, by the way, is a tremendous stress remover. Oftentimes we're stressed in these situations because we're thinking we need to bring someone to a point but really, it's the work of God's Spirit. So let's get into our game plan. And as Jerry mentioned earlier, what can we do to place a stone in someone's shoe? I want you to get that thought in your head. Putting a stone in someone's shoe. You don't have to win every argument, but we want to teach you some principles, some tactics, some skills that can help you get to the point where you can begin to turn someone's thinking. And the first part of our illustration here is called clearing the brush. And you see some wonderful African women outside trying to clear off a village. And clearing the brush, in a literal sense or a metaphoric sense, simply means taking away what's hiding something. Have some friends, they bought a piece of property, and there was a big brush pile in one part of their yard. As they cleared the brush away, they found a pear tree in the midst of it all. So clearing the brush, this is really important. When we're in a conversation with someone, the first thing we need to do is to begin to clarify. Now I'm going to give you four points here, four aspects that we're going to go through today. And the first point is the issue of clarification. Too often when we're in a conversation, we respond, we react. But what we need to do, first of all, is gather information. And we have a question for that. And that is, what do you mean by that? What's the point being made? So that's our first thing. Second thing is we listen to somebody. We want to find out what's the support for their arguments, for their evidence. Um, we could ask the question, what brought you to that conclusion? Third, we're going to examine whether people's arguments really support their conclusions. And then we're going to deal with certain difficulties. So that's our big overview, giving you an idea of, of clarifying looking at arguments, dealing with difficulties. Now, asking questions has the benefit of drawing someone out and inviting them into discussion. When they make a claim or a statement, you know, you need to know what exactly are they saying and why do they believe that? If they say, well, I don't believe in God, well, why are they saying that? And so we're taking the offensive in an inoffensive way and moving the conversation by using strategic questions, you know, into a particular direction and asking questions does three things first it moves the conversation in a spiritual direction we always want to move our conversations in a spiritual direction second it gets us educated about what they're saying we need to gather information about their point of view and third it makes a point without being pushing so how does this work we're gonna have uh, what we call knocking opportunities. And how are you going to respond to these scenarios? So the first scenario here says, you're sitting in the car, at the car dealer, waiting for the other customers as your, cars are be, your car is being serviced. A television news program highlights recent same-sex marriages for which activist mayors in San Francisco and New York have issued licenses. The person sitting across you says, it's about time. These folks just love each other. They should be able to get married like anyone else. Now, the challenge here is your opportunity will pass quickly. You only have a few seconds to initiate the conversation further. 
but you want to do so in a way that is product- productive and will stimulate everyone in that room to reflect intelligently on same-sex marriage. Um, to engage them for definitions, further understandings, you know, what is... All right, and, and the use of questions, as we just talked about, is the whole heart of our, um, our presentation. Anybody recognize this guy? Not really? Colombo, thank you. Somebody generationally connected with me. Uh, Colombo was a TV program like back in the day. And Colombo was a detective. He doesn't look very smart, all kind of frumpy. But as he would meet, uh, come on the crime scenes, he had those techniques. He, you know, looked like he didn't have a clue. And he would turn around and he would say, you know, could I ask you a question? And then he would ask a question, scratching his head. And then he would get an answer. And then he'd turn around and walk away. And then before he left, he said, can I ask you another question? And then it would go on and on and on until the criminal said, I confess. Um, He used questions to get to the bottom of things. And that is our game plan, is to use questions May I ask you a question? And there are, as I said, three phases in this. Gathering information or clearing the brush. Second one, finding out other people's reasons for their arguments or reversing the burden of proof and leading the conversation. So in order to clear away the brush or to clarify, our key question is, what do you mean by that? Or what's the significance of that? It's very important that we don't misunderstand people. Lots of times, both Christians and non-Christians alike have a jargon mentality. What do I mean by that? My sister has on the back of her car a bumper sticker that says, coexist. Have you seen that bumper sticker? And it's got all sorts of religious, religious symbols. Well, what do you mean by that? Coexist. You know, does that mean we should get if a, everyone should have the right to worship? Well, of course, we could agree with that. If it means, hi, come on in. If it means that all religions are the same, that's something different. Or I was uh, taking a class last year. Um, before class, I was just studying with some people, and we were talking about uh, Rwanda and the U.S.'s involvement or lack of involvement in Rwanda. And so I was, we were just talking about that, and then the person just, you know, just said, you're such a typical Democrat. The response? What do you mean by that? Um, now, we can't address things unless we clarify. Let's look at another example. It's common to say everything is relative. What do you mean by that? Every, what is everything, every, if everything is relative, is that statement relative? So using this question is very helpful in conversations. Asking questions engages the other person. So the point here is really to find out clearly what the other person is trying to express. You don't want to misunderstand or misrepresent someone. If we do misrepresent someone, then we're just knocking down a straw man, an argument that doesn't really exist. Yeah, did you have a question? Say that again. Frustrated. Well, it, it's really true. Sometimes you'll ask people questions, like, uh, and we'll, we'll go through this, uh, through the presentation, and sometimes people feel like, well, I just said it. And then they're getting frustrated. Um, but really, sometimes people don't think through what they're saying. And we'll come to that. It's a good observation. 
Now, the simple question of asking clarification is extremely pass uh, powerful. Not, never mind, powerful. Now, many of us, either if we go to church or we don't go to church, we use slogans that we don't even think about, you know, where they even came from. And by use, asking the question, what do you mean by that? You know, it, it's a powerful question that helps them flesh out their opinions and so that we can gain uh, information from them. And so the guideline is simple. If you ever come to a roadblock, ask the question. We should never make an assertion where we could make, use a question. So with some planning and some practice, that will become second nature. Again, questions are interactive. They're working with you and the other person. There's a, you're, you're inviting the other person to participate. If you ask, maybe not overly amount of questions, but if you ask questions about a person, people think, oh, well, you know, you're an interesting person because people like to talk about themselves. That's right. So this, this tactic, this game plan is especially useful either at work or you'll even find it useful in the classroom. It allows you to move your ideas forward without the other person feeling like you're preaching at them. So once again, asking these questions helps clarify because there's nothing worse than you know, tearing down an argument that the person doesn't even stand for. So if you just jump into arguing and blasting them for what they said and they're like, well, I, didn't, I wasn't even meaning that, then you just look really stupid. And so these asking questions is good so that you don't mis misrepresent uh, the person you're talking to. But it also forces the person to think about what they are saying, to actually say, oh, well, I haven't really thought about that, or what's the, why do I believe that? So let's say someone were to give you an argument that said something like resurrection, excuse me, resurrection. Reincarnation was originally a Christian idea and was deleted from the Bible. How could we respond? Well, using our game plan, what would be the first question we would say? What do you mean by that? Or how does that work? How did that happen? How did they go through every single translation of the Bible and cut out every single reference uh, to reincarnation? Um, Let's say someone says they don't believe in God. There's no evidence. We could say, what do you mean by that? Um, or a variation of that, what kind of God don't you believe in? I remember talking to Ty Gibson, and he was sitting next to someone on an airplane, and the guy found out he was a Christian, and he said, well, I don't believe in God. The fellow did. And Ty asked the question, well, what do you mean by that? What kind of God don't you believe in? And the man explained a God that would torture people or, you know, a God that was judgmental. And Ty said, well, you know, I'm an atheist too. And the guy looked at him and said, what do you mean you're an atheist? You just told me you're a preacher. And he says, well, I don't believe in that kind of God either. And so asking questions is very helpful. What if someone were to say, you can't take the Bible seriously because um, it's written by men and men make mistakes? What would you say? What do you mean by that? <laughs> Are there particular mistakes, you know, that you're thinking about? Do you have any books in your library? Are those books written by men? Do you think there's any truth in those books? Why do you think there's truth in those books, but not another book written by men? Is it possible that a book can be written by men and have truth? Do people always make mistakes when they write? So by asking questions like this, we're getting people to think beyond their slogans. And many people we'll meet are, are used to just throwing out statements and then having Christians either get defensive or aggressive or wilting. 
So again, the first step is to ask questions for clarification. Now let's look at these. We had this here, and some of you discussed this earlier. You're back in the service station, same conversation. Somebody says, you know, it's about time. These folks just love each other. They should be able to get married like anyone else. What question might we ask? What do you mean by that? What are you trying to say? What is your view of marriage, as was brought out earlier? Or, again, um, somebody says, Christianity's all the same. Our key question? What do you mean by that? Or some variation. Really, how could that be that all religions teach the same thing? Um, certainly they have parts that are similar, but do they all teach the same thing? Now, let me ask you a question here. Um, what are some challenges to your faith that you've encountered in the past year? Are there anything, two or three challenges that you have either encountered through your reading, through somebody you know, through television, any challenges to your faith? Anybody? Yes. Okay, um, Adventists misquoting scriptures. Okay. Okay, good, good point. Um, but some kind of a specific challenge to your faith. That's a very personal one, and uh, you need to start listening to people that quote the Bible correctly. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good. Why does it matter what church I go to? That's a challenge that we meet. Anybody else? If we have the truth, why is our church so divided? Insightful question. Somebody else? Now, say that again. Christians were persecuting people uh, at certain points in religious history. Okay, that's a good challenge. I don't want to be part of Christianity because Christianity persecutes people. Okay. Anyone else? Sometimes people make challenges. Any other challenges that you might have encountered? You all live in very placid ponds of Christianity, right? No challenges to your faith. And they thought the music was dead. Oh, I guess it depends on what church they're going to there as well, right? Okay, sometimes people throw out challenges. Yes. So the challenge of uh, finding a bridge from what you believe to somebody else, excuse me, somebody else's faith 
Yeah, that's a good point as well. So keep those in mind. Um, as we go through this, we want to come back to them. Our next part of this is reversing the burden of proof. And that is, when you meet somebody, our first question is clarifying, and that kind of a question is, what do you mean by that? Now, when somebody makes an assertion, somebody makes an argument, Christianity, all religions are the same, or uh, you Seventh-day Adventists are exclusive, or it doesn't matter what day you go to church, anybody that makes a statement has to support that statement, and we call that reversing the burden of proof. Now, our key question for this section is, what brought you to what brought you to that conclusion? Um, a person again makes a statement, uh, and they bear the responsibility of, you know, providing a reason why they believe in that statement. You know, so many times we feel because we're the Christians, we have to you know give all the evidence. But if somebody makes a statement, they have to give an evidence for their statement. Uh, I'm going to use an al- analogy of a building and compare it to an argument. The roof of a building is what we'd call the conclusion of the argument. Now, the walls are its supporting evidence. Now, if you build a house and you don't put really strong walls, what's going to happen to that house? It's going to collapse. It's going to. First of all, you're not going to be approved, uh, <laughs> but it's it's going to it's going to collapse. And so, the same way, if somebody makes a claim and doesn't have good evidence, then their argument falls down. And it's important to remember that. Opinions don't make up an argument. And uh, back to the point which you mentioned earlier, some people say what they believe or make a statement, but they really don't have reasons for it. And it's very dangerous when Seventh-day Adventists do the same thing. When we make statements as though they're facts, but we don't have reasons to support our arguments as well. So again, our key question here is, what brought you to that conclusion? So let's look at a, um, a few statements here. Let's examine a few of these statements. The only rational explanation for how we got here is evolution. You can believe in creation you, if you want, but that's all based on your faith in the Bible. Or a second argument here, a fetus doesn't have self-awareness. It's not a person. You think that a blob of cells is more important than real people who are already here. That's a religious claim you accept without proof. Now, if somebody were to challenge you like that, how would it impact you? Would you shy away from answering that person, or would you engage them? What? Are you just talking to him, muttering there? Yeah. The second one, what was your comment? No, I, I would just In what way would you engage them? <laughs> Okay, what would it do to your conference? How would you engage them? Okay, so you'd point out a uh, contradiction in here that we, we treat certain people that have a lack of awareness. We honor their life, but what about the fetus? Okay, you'd point out that flaw. What about some of the rest of you? 
say that one more time. Okay. So you try to argue that their premise is wrong, or you try to convince them that their premise is wrong, and that there really is life there with the fetus as well. There's a good question. Huh? What do you mean by a real person? <laughs> good point. Okay, you, you would raise the question about where self-awareness starts in the process. Okay. The question is to where self-awareness begins. Now, in each of these, people are making strong assertions, aren't they? And, again, if somebody makes a strong assertion, their responsibility is to defend it, to defend that assertion. So, again, it's important for us as we're talking with people and engaging them you know, we want to first find out what they're thinking. What do you mean by that? Then we want to find out why they think that way. Why they think that way. Let me read something to you from Richard Dawkins, um, who's written a book um, called The Blind Watchmaker. And he's talking about evolution. He would clearly believe in the top argument here. He asks the question this, this question. He says, how did wings get their start? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? How did wings get their start? Let me read his answer. Many animals leap from bough to bough and sometimes fall to the ground. True or false? True, right? Animals jump and I suppose they fall. Um, especially in a small animal, the whole body surface sometimes catches air and assists the leap or breaks the fall by acting as a aerofoil, crude aerofoil. So, you know, if I jump and I've got, you know, hangy skin, it's going to kind of catch the wind a little bit. Any tendency to increase the ratio of surface area to weight would help. For example, flaps of skin growing out in angles of joints would help. From there, it's a series of steps to gliding wings and then to flapping wings. Blind Watchmaker, page 89. Now, did you notice what he did in his argument? He started with a clear truth. Animals jump from bow to bow. And then what did he do? A, a series of assertions with really no evidence to them. An animal jumps, and if by some fact it had wings, well, that it would break its fall, obviously. Um, and he just makes this assertion. But what are his reasons for that? How did he come to that conclusion? <laughs> Now, as we've discussed, this question forces people to give evidence for their belief. But we should also be ready to do the same. In First Peter 3, verse 15, it says, But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. So we should always be prepared to give evidence for our, our uh, point of view. But we should not be the only ones. Uh, it's a very important lesson that when people come and make statements that they should also have the burden of proof. Uh, we need to re resist the impulse that when somebody makes an assertion to instantly, you know, start attacking and going like that. They first need to give themselves, you know, gives us the evidence for what they're believing.
And so we've seen in the examples, uh, you know, that sometimes people just make assertions with no claims. So if someone says, I can explain that, then weaves a hypothetical story like Dawkins does. You know, he just gives us a nice sounding story. That doesn't constitute as evidence. That's just, you know, rhetoric to make us believe in that. Yeah, and it's really important, one of the things that Jeremy said, that our human tendency, our natural tendency, is to jump back with an argument and to counter. No, the fetus isn't this, or, uh, you know, religions aren't all the same, and our tendency is to automatically engage. We would be much better served by controlling the conversation through questions, asking them. It takes a lot of pressure off of us to engage in conversations and find out where they're going. Again, um, most of us, if we really get aggressive in it, it really begins to show in our face, in our countenance, and in our tone of voice. Asking questions is a helpful way to keep that under control. And by the way, you know, this question, what do you mean by that? It's not, what do you mean by that? Um, but it's an engaging, really. Uh, what do you mean by that? Could you help me understand your point of view? Remember, as we talk about reversing the burden of proof, our, our, here, our point here is not that we would escape defending our ideas. We need to give rational arguments as well. But they have a responsibility to defend their points of view at the same time. All right, it's 10-2. We're supposed to stop, is that correct? We're going to take a break, 10-minute break, and we're going to start again at 3 o'clock. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. <laughs>